Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to talk about what we can learn from the fight against the first wave of the coronavirus. Why the virus was tackled so differently in different countries across the globe, who succeeded and who failed, and above all, what were the reasons for the choices that they made? I am really happy today to welcome Peter Baldwin, who is Professor of History at the University of California and author of a wonderful new book called Fighting the First Wave, Why the Coronavirus Was Tackled So Differently Across the Globe. It's the sort of book I thought we might have to wait years to look at because it is absolutely packed with erudition and calm and sober analysis at a time when our debates about coronavirus haven't always been characterized by those uh, features. Thank you very much for joining, Peter. Thank you for having me. So what I'd like to do is is to, to dive right into it and start with this question about who did well and who didn't. And then we can look at what the different responses are and, and why people went down those different routes. But maybe we can just start with the most fundamental question, which is who are the heroes and villains of the first wave? Ah, heroes and villains. Well, look, if you think about the countries that, that came out sort of best, at least in terms of the public health response, you know, they, they share a certain number of characteristics. You know, they're small, they're distant. They tend to be ethnically homogenous. They tend to be politically consensual. They're not very densely settled. And many of them are islands. You know, I would say that's, you know, six characteristics. If you've got three or four of those, you're probably sort of ahead of the game in terms of uh, of doing uh, well. I mean, we're talking about countries like Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Taiwan, Norway, Finland, you know, places um, that are manageable and controllable. But if you step back from just, as it were, sort of ticking boxes and trying to figure out who did well, I think it's fair to say that those countries that handled the public health response were the ones either that had the tools to do so. In other words, were autocratic enough to be able to make their people do what they had to do to prevent infection. And that's above all China. Or they're the countries that could rely on a fair degree of compliance from their citizens, uh, citizens being willing to do what they had to do in order to shut down the chains of transmission. You know, the Prime Minister of New Zealand spoke often about her team of five million. Lucky political leader to be able to have that kind of backing from their population to... Yeah, most struggle to get their cabinet to back them, let alone five million. Well, exactly, exactly. Uh, so the countries that did well, you know, were the ones that sort of either, as I say, could could make the population uh, respond to the right way, or where the population was willing to do so. Now, the interesting thing is a nation like Taiwan, they both could rely on a certain amount of sort of cultural capital. There's a belief and trust in government. It's obviously very sort of ethnically homogenous country. Their social divisions are less than elsewhere in the world. And yet at the same time, it's not like they gave up their ability to command their citizens. You know, they had drastic fines for violating things. So carrot and stick were very much sort of an evidence in countries like that. One of the odd countries, you know, in these terms was Sweden, which assumed that it could rely on its citizens uh, following, doing what they should do without being ordered to. And the Swedes are very proud of saying, you know, why do we need rules? Our people will do what's right all by themselves. But at the same time, they were also counting on herd immunity, 
which in effect means that you assume that your people are not going to do what they're supposed to because, in fact, they're going to go out and get infected. So, Peter, why don't we go a bit deeper into this? Because you have this wonderful way of taxonomizing the, the different responses that we've seen around the globe. Do you want to lay out what the kind of main baskets of response were? Sure. Well, we have a problem that is medically, etiologically, disease-specifically the same everywhere, you know, this, this, the same disease is attacking uh, every nation. And you could say 200 countries, 200 responses. That would be an exaggeration. These 200 countries can be grouped into three basic pots, I, I would say. On the one hand, we have the Asian nations, and I'm including New Zealand and Australia here, that implemented what one might call a kind of targeted quarantine. In other words, you isolate the places and the people who are infected or likely to be infected, and you make sure they don't have contact with others, and you prevent others from coming in to the place that you're trying to uh, protect. You quarantine in, you quarantine out. But you do so very specifically, so that only a small part of your population is actually affected by these quarantines, and the vast mass of the population can continue with its lives uh, fairly unaffected. So that's one group. Then you have the people, or the countries rather, who decided to Uh, implement what one might call a a mitigation strategy, which is to say that you implement a certain number of restrictions. Uh, You you say that when people go out in public, you have to distance, you close certain institutions, but on the whole, you don't impose any sort of drastic sanctions, and you allow the epidemic to sweep through your population, willingly accepting a higher degree of mortality than would otherwise be the case, and in return, expecting some degree of herd immunity that will allow you not to experience the first wave better than other countries, but to experience a second wave with a now more immune population that therefore will be spared uh, high infection and death rates the second time around. So that's a mitigation strategy. And then finally, we come to the strategy that most of us have lived through, which is to say the strategy adopted in the West and in uh, North America and indeed in many other countries as well. And that is, of course, cross the board lockdown. These were the nations that didn't have the bureaucratic power or the nimbleness of political response to do the targeted quarantine that we find in Asia. And they were the nations that were not willing to take the risk of the increased mortality that the mitigation strategy brought with it. And your second basket, that was, that's the Swedish. That's the mitigation. Yes, the the ones that the Swedes followed. And that involves higher mortality. So the the lockdown nations did not want to accept higher mortality and they weren't able to lock down in time to do a targeted form of quarantine. So instead, we ended with what we all have been living through, namely that the whole country shuts down at a very high cost to the economy and of course, at a very high cost to morale as we all sit sullenly in lockdown, wondering when we can get our lives back. Yeah, we talked a bit about which have worked best, which haven't worked best, and we can maybe go into more detail on that. But what I found really wonderful about your book is that you you try and understand why people come to these arrangements. And you look at quite a lot of different factors. Do you want to run through some of the, the different prisms through which you looked at this to try and understand why different countries respond in such different ways? If you're you know, taking a global approach, of course, means traveling in a helicopter at a high altitude and only looking at large generalities. And so it's hard to go into detail. But I think that the fundamental thing we have to say is that the disease was the same everywhere, but that the pandemic 
was not the same everywhere. Different countries were hit in different ways to different degrees, and therefore, in some sense, had different problems they had to solve. They, some were spared, you know, and some were less spared, and therefore, the pandemic was not the same thing everywhere. And part of the reason for that variance is simple geography. Some places are quite literally further away from the main currents of epidemic contagious transmission, and some are sort of in the middle of things. Some have much denser travel connections to the rest of the world, and some are more remote. So the remote countries tended on the whole to do better. New Zealand uh, is an example. The South Sea Pacific Island nations, almost all of which simply shut down and didn't let anyone in and were therefore spared, are another example. You know, there are good reasons for why Norway and Finland could uh, keep the disease at bay. They're simply sort of further away. And with even within countries, of course, you see that. I mean, you know, Eastern Europe did better than Western Europe in the beginning, in large measure, I think, because they're sort of off the beaten track. The Midwest in the US did better than the coasts for similar reasons. So there's a kind of geographical, topographical reason for why some nations uh, were spared. Then we also get biological reasons. And here, this is much more speculative and no doubt epidemiologists will spend the next decades uh, studying this. So, And this is uh, you know above my pay grade, so I'm throwing this out merely as what I've read and suggestions, nothing about which I know anything with any expertise. But there is talk, for example, that in the, the so-called Buddhist triangle, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, uh, Myanmar, nations like that, that there's the possibility that there was a kind of cross-reactive immunity from other similar diseases in the past that help explain why these nations were so remarkably spared the levels of infection that uh, were common elsewhere, even though, of course, they, you know, some of them uh, are right on the border with uh, China. And then more broadly, there's an intriguing possibility that's only just begun to be uh, sort of formulated. And that is that the hygiene hypothesis actually may be true in this case. The hygiene hypothesis says effectively that over clean, over-hygienic circumstances mean that our immune systems are under-exercised, and therefore those of us who have lived and been brought up in overly hygienic circumstances are less able to resist a certain kinds of diseases, especially autoimmune diseases. You know, we all know that children who are raised without pets suffer higher asthma levels. But scientists have begun sort of broadening this, and it is possible that one of the reasons why nations like India and Pakistan have infection and mortality rates that are less than a tenth of those of most Western nations and North American nations has something to do with the hygiene hypothesis that they simply were sort of were better prepared on an individual level to withstand something like this. And then, of course, there's the recent observation about the correlation between mortality and obesity, you know, 2.5 million deaths globally. 2.2 million of those deaths have occurred in nations where over half the population is overweight. There is some correlation between mortality from COVID and obesity. So then, of course, we have the political reasons uh, why some nations did better than others. And I've already touched on those, you know, those nations that were able to enforce measures did better. And those nations that were able to count on their populations where there was a trust in government in the population did better in terms of responding in public health terms. And do you think, I mean, the way you described it earlier, there's a sort of equivalence between either having this really, really powerful repressive state capacity or just having, a, you know, a really high sense of civic 
responsibility and awareness. Are they more or less equivalent or are there quite big differences between how they played out? I mean, there are quite big differences in how people on the ground experience is obviously yeah. going to be different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't tell you off the top of my head, you know, in terms of mortality rates that I don't know, but I'm thinking here in terms of the contrast between a country like China, where they simply did what was necessary to contain it to a small part of the total territory of the nation and a nation like uh, New Zealand, where there seems to have been broad consensus that it was okay to shut down travel and to decimate the tourist industry for a year and to keep everybody at home and you know that sort of thing and where where do you think that that consent comes from because i mean that was one of the the things i think that has surprised people is how easy it was to have consent for these draconian measures which people thought you know china might get away with but a western democracy would never brook the idea of of shutting down an entire country that is extremely interesting question because I think, in fact, the dirty little secret of the public response to the pandemic is that in the beginning, at least in the first wave, that many democratic nations actually underestimated their population's willingness to be submitted to drastic measures. Um, that was clearly the case in the UK, where you know Boris Johnson said, "Oh, you know the the average Brit wouldn't tolerate you know not being able to go to the pub, and therefore you couldn't shut these things down." And it was only when he was sort of confronted with the figures that Neil Ferguson and his team at Imperial gave him that he, uh, realizing that you know if you didn't shut down the pubs, that the mortality rates would be politically completely unacceptable. That he sort of switched horses and and, and did. And in fact, I think the average Brit in the beginning, you know, wanted the government to do even more than it did and be and be firmer. And I think that holds for a number of cases. The Swedish case is, is similar. You know, the Swedish government simply decided that Swedes would not sit still for the kinds of measures that the Danes and the Norwegians and the Finns tolerated perfectly amiably. Now, that's different from what happens later on. You know, when you get to lockdown number two and three, people are beginning to get fed up. And especially if there's a lot of variation and tergiversation in politicians' responses. You know, the Tory government finally did shut down, but then it sort of U-turned on a lot of other issues, you know, shutting down travel, opening it up again, shutting it down again. You know, the consistency is, a, is a, I think, a major element. It would have been significantly better had nations shut down brutally for a shorter period of time than a kind of sort of half-hearted shut some things, leave some things open, muddle along, sort of jollying people along, but not really getting the task done. So you have this this quite intriguing notion of the disease prevention groupthink. Do you want to elaborate on that a bit? It's a lovely phrase. By that, in Asia, I simply mean that there was a sort of trust in government and a, and a consensual belief that what the governments were doing was the right thing and that one shouldn't, what's the point of kicking up a fuss because ultimately what they're trying to do is sort of, you know, spare us all. The real question is, you know, why couldn't we have had something similar like that um, in the West? You know, in the West, we decided to pick battles over civil rights in the middle of an epidemic. I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't want to come off sounding like some kind of you know authoritarian curmudgeon, but is the middle of an epidemic really the time to worry about whether a tracing app on your phone violates your privacy by transmitting your location and not just the proximity to other people who may or may not be infected? I mean, I'm happy to fight these battles later. I'm happy to have phone apps that, you know, are taken off phones once the epidemic is over. But it seems to me in the midst of an epidemic, a phone app that allows 
authorities, public health authorities, to trace people who are potentially infected and to alert them if they've been in contact with others is a good thing, not something to sort of begin fighting about. And the same for masks. You know, the idea that in the midst of a pandemic, democratic citizens start to insist that being able to or being required to wear a mask, that this is somehow a violation of their civil rights strikes me as little short of lunacy. Masks are not at the beginning, but became an obvious precaution. And it's hard for me to see why they are a great violation of civil rights and why it shouldn't be perfectly obvious that one wears them when going into public. But, you know, if you look at the places, it's very interesting to look at the whole question of mask compliance, because, of course, in Asia, it's absolutely second nature. You put on a mask when you go out, just like in the old days, we used to put on a hat when you went out. Nobody even thinks about it. In the U.S., for all the protests um, against mask wearing, compliance has been pretty good. I mean, on the coasts more than in the heartland and so forth, but still, on the whole, very good. Where you get real serious mask resistance is, above all, in Europe, and not just from extremists, but, you know, from governments. Angela Merkel, for all her virtues, uh, was not a great mask wearer and didn't do much to sort of inspire no more than Trump, of course, but, you know, in a similar category in, in, in those terms. And mask resistance, the strongest mask resistance, comes in the Nordic countries, where the premise of their cultural ethos is supposed to be one of solidarity, and yet they can't put on masks. You know, I don't think it was until December of last year that it finally became recommended to put on masks when you went into public transport. It's extraordinary why Scandinavians think that masks are violate their, you know, God-given rights to breathe on others. So you spent a lot of time in Sweden over the years, and and Sweden is one of the the, the most vivid examples of the book, and it is this kind of strange outlier in in the European context. Do you want to say a bit more about what we can learn from the Swedish experience? I mean, Sweden occupies a lot of space in the book precisely because it is so unusual. You know, the Swedes alone, well, that's not entirely true. I was going to say the Swedes alone in among the Western democracies went their own way. But some of the Netherlands took a similar approach, not quite as dramatic. Iceland as well. Iceland has the great advantage of you know, being able to control movement in and out even more thoroughly than the Swedes can. I mean, there are a number of countries, um, you know, Japan arguably took a similar approach, but the Swedes, you know, really made a point of striking out on, on their own. And that it is almost inexplicable, I would say. It's still something of a mystery to me. They um, completely U-turned on their traditional approach to contagious disease. I mean, as recently as the AIDS epidemic, the Swedes were among the strictest clampdown nations when it came to restricting the rights of HIV positive people. You know, they were in a camp all by themselves, along with the Bavarians and the Cubans and a few American states and North Korea in actually going so far as to imprison people who were HIV positive and refused to agree that they would practice only safe sex if they weren't locked up. So they were very strict in terms of following traditional contagious disease practices inherited from the the 19th century. And then in this particular occasion, they decided just to throw it all overboard and go in a completely different direction. And this is why your question about groupthink, I, I got confused and thought it applied to Sweden, because in this case, one of the reasons, one of the explanations is that there was a kind of capture among 
the highest ranking uh, civil servants in the public health bureaucracy, who all agreed, they were all trained by each other, they were all friends, they all sort of succeeded each other. Uh, when one retired, you know, his student would then sort of take the job over. Tegnell is a student of Giesecke, and I think there's a sort of a cluster of people who all sort of studied in the same place and were trained in the same way. And they decided that this was the right approach, and the politicians were not about to contradict them. And so they effectively got to run the show for the entire year. Indeed, they're still in power, inexplicably to me, even though, as far as I can see, it's been a colossal fa failure. And, you know, you sort of begin to wonder, you know, what does it really take to get fired in Sweden as a bureaucrat if you've made a hash of things? So your book is obviously not about the whole corona story because that's still ongoing and we're going to have to live with it and through it, I think, probably for a number of years. And then it will take even longer to have proper analysis about all the twists and turns in the story. But one of the things which is striking is is a lot of the countries which were seem to be doing really well in the in the first wave, which you write about, are now under a lot of pressure. Germany's a, a very good example of that. I mean, how do you see the story continuing? I, I imagine there'll be uh, there'll be some more volumes in your study as we as we go further into the coronavirus story. Well, the great annoyance of writing contemporary history is, you know, your contemporaries are a bit unpredictable and they continue doing things even when you've put the, bu the book to bed. So, yes, um, I, I wish I, I now need to write another chapter at least and possibly revise. But so here, here's the thing. The public health response is only one part of the response because there's an even more important response, and that is the medical slash vaccine response. And the actors in that story are totally different from the actors in the public health response. So the big actors in the vaccine story are, of course, the US and the UK with their big biomedical establishments and their ability to bring you know, half a dozen vaccines to fruition in extraordinarily short time. In this case, of course, two for the first time in world history, Russia and China are players in the same league. And that's, that's intriguing. Although in both cases, it's a mystery why it is that they're not vaccinating their own population but instead flogging their vaccines in the third world. I mean, I think we understand it geopolitically, but what does it say about their response uh, at home that that's what they're doing? In any case, my point is that the vaccine response, those who have done well there are a entirely different group of people than those who did well in the public health response. You can say what you want about Trump's public health response, but he certainly got the vaccine business more or less right in the sense that he spent $18 billion dollars uh, getting vaccines, you know, up and running. In comparison, the Europeans, I think, have spent something like a little less than four billion. The larger population, you know, pre-ordering and research and development and that sort of thing. So the bulk of the financing has come from the U.S. and um, now the U.K. and the U.S. are, are, you know, the ones who are sort of among the big nations, the ones who are doing best in terms of rolling it out. And in the meantime, as we know. The European nations, have, you know, who did arguably better in the public health response have sort of stumbled in this response. Now, I think there's a connection here, because why are some countries particularly interested in a vaccine and sort of, you know, desperate to get it out and done? It seems to me the answer is that, that technology trumps politics. You know, these are the nations that did not do well in the public health response. They did not do well because they could not command the compliance they needed 
within their populations to do the right things for a sufficiently lengthy period of time. And so they need the sort of technical fix of an exit through the vaccine. And that is precisely what uh, they've been able to, to do. They, you know, they have permitted the world the exit strategy. The public health strategy, after all, was just a holding pattern. It was just sort of dampening things down in anticipation of a vaccine or some other medical uh, solution to the problem, without which we would never actually get out of this. So in that sense, the story continues. And then not only do we have the vaccine development story, but we have the vaccine rollout story, which is sort of an amplification of the vaccine development story, that the same countries that developed it have all, are also, it turns out, the ones who are rolling it out most um, dramatically. So one of the really interesting themes in your book is about the whole question about the the state and how uh, the, the relationship between the state and civil society, the state and the economy, and how that gets changed through these pandemics. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Trust in government is obviously a huge factor in terms of whether a nation handles a pandemic well or not. And those nations where that trust is not high, those nations where that are fragmented, ethnically, politically, religiously, those are not the nations that did well. Again, if I may go back to the Swedish example, I know I keep on harping on this, but Sweden is very interesting, you know, in this pandemic, precisely as a kind of a bellwether. The Swedes assumed that their population would do the right thing voluntarily. Well, how do you do something voluntarily? That, impl that implies a kind of communal mentality, common approach. Can a modern multicultural society assume this any longer? The Swedes, in a sense, sort of their basic cultural presupposition was that their society was sort of monocultural in the sense that everybody agreed to certain kinds of behavior. But in fact, it turned out, of course, the Swedes are like every other democracy in the West. They're highly multicultural. You can't take any particular behavioral precepts for granted. And of course, the people in the Swedish population who were hardest hit were ethnic minorities and other, and I'm putting this in quotations, even though you can't see it, you know, other outsiders from a Swedish, from an ethno-national Swedish point of view, outsiders, just like in every other country. But most other countries realized that uh, pretty quickly, that you know the, the disease was hitting different parts of its population quite differently, and that it had to pay attention to this, and that you had to do things like you know make sure that when you start rolling out the vaccine, that it goes into neighborhoods that wouldn't otherwise necessarily be able to take it up as easily, that it goes into them preferentially. All these sorts of approaches that assume multiculturalism were ignored by the Swedes in that they base their response on a kind of a kind of groupthink that simply didn't exist any longer. Okay, we're running out of time, but I want to ask you one more question, which comes from the, the conclusion of your book, where you have this quote where you say, nothing will ever be the same. We've seen it all before. These are the two rocks between which historians pilot their ships. So what do you think the lasting effects of the fight against the corona pandemic will be? You know, when you look back at 1918, more deaths than the war, and yet historically forgotten, you know, 1918, the Spanish, who even knew about it until we were in the midst of something similar ourselves, you know, then it gets dredged out and now everyone pays attention to it. Is that going to be the same effect here? Is this going to be a kind of thing that is different from a war that, you know, we will get through it and then 
we'll sort of have forgotten about it again in 10 years. I certainly hope not. I do think one big difference is going to be that there's going to be a lot more funding for public health. And I think we're going to pay a lot more attention to matters of public health. Or if we don't, we are damn fools and then we'll deserve whatever hits us the next time around. You know, whether there's, you know, more faith in big government, whether big government is going to sort of play a larger role, it's certainly sort of moving, playing a larger role in the economy. Deficit spending and that sort of thing is obviously up by orders of magnitude. So we're going to be living with the financial and economic consequences of what uh, went on this past year for a long time. If nothing else, you know, how to get the spending back down or how to pay off the, um, the monies that were um, used. So... Um, All right. Well, we'll have to come get you back to to talk about things as they develop. Then uh, we'll have to to wait till uh, volume two in your study comes out, or even before then, you can give us a preview on the podcast. There's one thing left to do on the podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. I, of course, recommend Peter's book, which is available in all good bookshops, and we'll put up a link to it online. It's called fighting the first wave why the coronavirus was tackled so differently across the globe by peter baldwin but peter what's on your bookshelf well um if, if we're sticking to the topic here you know it's interesting a lot of books have come out already there's a book by jonathan calvert and george arbuthnot on the british response it's coming out i think um sometime this week and there's a book by a guy named johan underberg uh, that will be out in english translation eventually called The Herd, which is about the Swedish response, and I I suspect that they will amplify and give lots of detail to uh, what I have suggested in my book, uh, which is that, you know, both of these governments um, made plenty of mistakes uh, along the way and didn't respond uh, very well. But if you're asking sort of more generally, one of the most remarkable books I've read in recent memory, I have a book coming out in the fall on crime and punishment through the ages. And of course, The Gods, were the first policemen, the first punishers, the first enforcers. And there's a book by an Oxford historian named Alan Strathern called Unearthly Powers. And it's an absolutely extraordinary book about the fundamental shift in human thinking that many of us um, know little about, at least I confess to having been greatly enlightened by it. That sounds absolutely wonderful. So we'll put links up to all these publications on our website, which is ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Peter Baldwin and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedel.